Hello, welcome to PSR People Speaking Rail. I'm your host, Mike Bowden. I'm the head of intermodal solutions here at FreightWaves. So I've helped the data customers with their intermodal needs. And that is exactly the topic that we're going to dig into uh, today. So today um, we're going to be talking about rail intermodal. We'll talk about the interaction between truckload and rail intermodal, sort of the competitive dynamics there, uh, an area we hear a lot of interest in from the shippers that we work um, with. Also, government officials want to um, move more over the over, over the railroads. Um, you know, the railroads themselves need to have that avenue for growth. So, a lot of interested parties um, on this topic. And uh, what we thought we'd do today is have on uh, two guests: one from the Environmental Defense Fund, and then another who is a consultant who um, you know co-authored a report on that on that topic. the The title of the report is "Decarbonizing Long Haul Freight." Uh, which is something that you can uh, find. Just go to Environmental Defense Fund and uh, railroads should, should come uh, right up. Um, so we're going to speak with um, Andrew Howell, who's the head of research of sustainable finance at the Environmental Defense Fund, and then Bill Loftus, who does the management consulting, owner and principal of, of, of the company uh, Supply Chain Ecology. Do we have Andrew and Bill? Just, just Andrew for now. Howdy. Good to see you. You as yeah, well. Thanks for, yeah, so thanks for um, for joining me on uh, People Speaking Rail. Uh, you know, great topic. You know, I read through the, the report that you had uh, commissioned um, called Decarbonizing Long Haul Freight. Uh, really a lot to dig into. And I've actually um, you know, sent a few of the slides to, to people here internally. This is kind of a intermodal 101 and, and certain things that make intermodal, kind of make intermodal tick. Um, but I wanted to ask you, I mean, what, um, you know, drove your interest in, in that and, and caused you to, um, you know, commission this report? Yeah, well, well, thanks so, so much for having me and thanks for your interest in this work. Uh, Environmental Defense Fund, um, for those who don't know, is a large, as you can guess, environmental nonprofit uh, based in the U.S., been around for about 50 years um, and focused on climate and on health. Um, really the, the way that we work in EDF is trying to find practical ways, uh, to solve for the huge challenges we are facing on our planet to transition to clean energy, uh, to avoid the worst impact of the climate change that we're already seeing today. Um, but we really do need to find practical solutions. Um, the good news is there are a lot of practical solutions out there. Um, and we're focused on working um, both with policy and with uh, the private sector to try to make those happen. Uh, so we look at the big um, sources of climate polluting um, emissions out there and how can we try to address those and transition those. And transportation, of course, is a huge uh, piece of that. Um, uh, within transportation, heavy duty trucking is a big piece of, of, of the emissions um, sources. It's about 12%. Uh, so it's one, one of the biggest um, things you wanna fix if you wanna deal with the energy transition. And the really good news when it comes to medium and heavy duty trucking uh, is that there is a technology that exists, uh, which is electrification that is suitable for trucking. That's not the case for some other forms of transportation where those technologies still being figured out, uh, like aviation, shipping, and trucking. We kind of know what we need to do, 
Um, but we also know we're not fully there yet. Um, we will take time to roll out those solutions. Um, you know, that's particularly the case for long haul trucking, big distances. Um, we need to still have better, more energy dense batteries. Um, we still mm -hmm. need to build out the charging networks aren't fully there. Um, and so one of the areas that challenge in terms of we need to start to fix these things now, um, all the technologies and build out isn't fully ready. Uh, that led us to intermodal uh, because, you know, for long haul trucking, um, if you can move more freight to rail, uh, you really can solve a lot of the source of emissions immediately because the energy for rail is so much lower than it is for trucking. And so that's what led us to bring on Bill to help us look at really the what we think are quite significant opportunities in emphasizing this shift intermodal. That's, that's great. And we do have Bill now. And and Bill, um, why don't you, you take it from here a little bit? And, and you know, what did you uh, conclude by, you know, conducting this, this, this study? What were some of the big, big takeaways? Oh, wow. Um, well, you know, we covered a lot of ground here. Um, in terms of big, most meaningful things we found, um, I'll go through a couple of them. Um, one is just, and it's not, this wasn't unknown, but it was like, help clarify a little bit. It's the scope of intermodal is pretty small when you look at the entire scope of truckload transportation. Um, I mean, we knew all along that intermodal is focused on dense lanes. It's long trains, so it's high density, it's long moves. But I think you may have seen in the study, we drew out a little four box diagram where we looked at on one of the axes is um, length of haul. The other axis is density. Mm -hmm. And when you step back and look at that four, four square diagram, you realize that a large part of the truckload movements don't even qualify, if you will, for intermodal in the current ecosystem. So, mm -hmm. so that's, you realize that if you're, if you, if you stick in this ecosystem that we know today, the chance for dramatic intermodal expansion is fairly small. So that kind of led us down a couple different solution paths. But so that was a big finding. It was more of a, a pop out, if you will. A, a big one we ran into was this new technology about autonomous electric bogies. Um, that was a new one for me. Um, if that technology is approved and it's cost competitive, then um, that could really impact the scope. And the reason is that the economics, they're, they're more similar to trucking. So they, these platoons of 5, 10, 20 plus cars, that's dramatically different from the way intermodal trains move today, which can be two to five, four miles long. So... Where that takes us is that the rails density calculus is changing if these things come to market and they're priced competitively. So if you go back to that scope diagram I just talked about, you know, the scope changes. Uh, I'll, I'll say that two of our advisors were extremely familiar with this technology and both considered it to be, you know, potentially game changing. So that looked to be a real promising profound. Uh, um, we, we learned a lot about carrier routings too, um, and how carrier routings are a limitation or a constraint. It's really a subset or a driver of the density question, you know, but, um, w we had some findings that said these routings are 
kind of hard to come by. Um, I had we had a situation during the course of the study where I've got a client in Eastern North Carolina. This is an example case study. Um, they have the perfect intermodal freight. They they ship low margin full truckloads to retail DCs. There's not a better product for intermodal freight than something like that. And they do it when they can, but their closest intermodal terminal is 125 miles away. So they're very limited to very long moves. So they'll ship intermodal to Sacramento or LA, but they won't ship it to Chicago, which is still within reach. I mean, it's 800 miles away, but it doesn't qualify because the dray move is so, so long. Well, during the study, we discover that a class one carrier puts up an automated intermodal terminal 40 miles from their plant. So then it got into, well, wow, this is different. Your, your transportation has probably completely changed now, right? No, it hasn't. It turns out that terminal was over a year in existence. And still, when we were doing the study, the carrier was only implementing three destinations from that terminal out of its entire network. So it takes a long time for these perfect routings to develop and evolve. So, mm-hmm. so what, you know, the learning there is that, um, you know, it's not just the system infrastructure, it's not just how many hubs are out there, it's the routing system matter as well. So, mm-hmm. so that was, that was a learning. Um, and we turned our attention a lot to short line rail in the course of the study. Uh, we learned about its role, its economics, you know, how it integrates it sometimes with others. And that was pretty interesting. So, you know, we've got six class one carriers in the continent. There's over 600 class two and class three carriers. Um, they own about 40 percent of the track in North America. But intermodal is only 1% of their volume. So this was kind of interesting. Um, and all the data we found about shortline economics, and we're going back to kind of the price competitive thing here, is that the shortline economics are different from class one. Um, they're, they're generally less expensive. Uh, they're private companies. Um, they're still businesses, so they need to make a profit. But... I guess private companies look at profit differently than public companies do. So as we dug into those costs, what we discovered was that shortline rail could potentially be much more cost competitive to truckload than the class ones are. Um, and so we actually took a couple examples and we, we, I think we confirmed that at much shorter moves, like 200 plus miles, the short line could potentially be competitive with truck. Now, in many cases, it matters on what the price of the truck is, obviously, but nonetheless, they're out there. So back to the scope diagram again, you now have a situation where shorter moves could potentially be intermodal qualifying as well. And so changes. Um, So this got us thinking about the business model a little bit. Um, is there a way, what if we could create a business model where these short lines do more of the costly, complex activities like building train blocks for a destination, for example, and then connect them with a class one that's running those long moves? Um, might that work? Um, so that was something that came out of our study that we would draw to your attention. Um, and we found yes. out that the class they they actually do integrate 
there's not many, but they do integrate in intermodal. So it, what it stands to say is that um, this isn't just some far-fledged concept that's pie in the sky. This is actually happening. It's just a matter of putting it together. So uh, mm-hmm. so that was the final. The, the, the final thing I'll say, most of my conversation up to now is around how we change the scope. We probably didn't do enough attention towards the current ecosystem, that top right box. Um, what we found there was really interesting was what uh, shippers' priorities are and and what tools they have to use. And what we found in that regard was, for the most part, the main factor for intermodal decisions is cost savings. So if we can save money, intermodal enters the conversation, has to be an acceptable service. Um, so... Of the, of the surveys, I think 95% of the shippers said cost was the big factor. 52% said capacity enhancement is a factor for including intermodal, but only 35% said emissions was a factor. So, um, so we found that from the priorities perspective, and that was kind of disappointing. As Andrew said, long-haul trucking is a big contributor to so to think that you know, over 65% of the people we survey don't consider emissions as part of a transportation decision. That was disappointing. But here's an interesting thing in terms of what they're looking for in terms of service. It's really around reliability, um, much mm-hmm. more so than times. And then we found, well, can you, can you compare on reliability? And about half of them did not have the ability to compare performance of versus intermodal. So in the current ecosystem, that top right square we're talking about, um, that's a big deal. If we could somehow be more public about information to truly compare truckload versus intermodal, I think we should, we would, we would, that would be a big accomplishment because right now, without that information, a lot of shippers have to default and presume truck. So those are all a yeah. whole long, big findings. Well, you bring up a lot of great points. Um, and, and I'll ask kind of the, the question that stands out to me maybe the most is short line railroads have not historically done much intermodal volume. Like you look at Genesee and Wyoming's portfolio of companies that they own yeah. in North America, very little revenue from, from intermodal. Um, you know, wh- why is that? Why could it change? And you talk about building out these uh, kind of micro hubs. Um, is it, would that be an investment from the class one in your vision or from the, the short line or assistance from the government? Or, or how, how do you sort of see that? Well, that's a great question. Um, if if the short line were to build it out, my gut is that they would see a place in their network where it could apply. Right. So. um, And if they did, they would probably need to partner with municipalities who, you know, there's federal money out there that will pay for a large part of these investments. So if they partnered with a municipality, then that would be two major stakeholders who could make that happen. Um, So I think that's how it could happen. You're you're right. Intermodal is only about one percent of short lines volume. So they actually are out of the market for the most part. So it's it's kind of a new business channel for them. What would get them into it? Um, you know, there there needs to be 
kind of the typical business thing. There needs to be recognition that this is out there. Um, there needs to be a business case on does it make sense to invest for a hub? Can you get federal monies to subsidize it? Um, and if the if the answer is integrate with a class one, then they'd have to go through those integration conversations as well and just make sure that everybody's on board. So those are just some thoughts. Good, good thoughts. Um, Andrew, I wanted to ask you, um, I have a chart here that from your, from your report that I, I think is really good. Um, so this is the efficiency advantage from electrification. And so, you know, trucks and railroads run on diesel fuel. Those would be the, the blue bar charts. And, you know, what's interesting is that, of, of course, rail has a fuel advantage on both, you know, both whether, the, whether the industry was, both industries were diesel or both industries were electric. But even if rail were to stay diesel, that blue line, blue um, bar on the right, it still beats truck in, in, in orange. So I thought that was really interesting. And then, you know, kind of where do you see, um, you know, electrification going um, in, in these in these various vehicle types? I know it's it's more challenging with uh, railroads. You know, I, I think it's very challenging still with, with with long haul. You know, California has kind of does their own thing with carb. Um, you know, you know, how do you see this developing in, in the coming years for that long haul freight, which is uh, the, the primarily the focus here? Yeah, well, well, thanks for pointing that out. And I think that, that it, it is an amazing chart when you think that even if rail does not itself electrify, which, of course, we also hope to see, but even if rail remains fully a diesel internal combustion engine technology, it would still um, produce fewer emissions um, than an electrified trucking system. Um, now, that's, 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 you know, using certain assumptions today on um, you know, how those, those, uh, that, where that electricity itself is generated, right? So you, we don't have a fully clean, clean grid. Eventually we, we the grid becomes hundred percent driven by renewable energy that it would be lower emission, essentially would be zero emission. But today, um, diesel train is cleaner and that's because it just is so much dramatically more efficient technology. Um, but the reality is that, um, trucking is electrifying and we're seeing that, happening uh today you know edf tracks um both pilots by by shippers essentially who are um in increasingly introducing electrification you know electrified trucks into their um th their uh supply chains essentially you know and, and and fleets which are starting to convert um to electric trucks we're, we're seeing more availability of electric trucks every day uh, and on that, the, the the announcements we've seen a fourfold increase in sort of deployments um, compared with a year ago uh, in the marketplace um, from a very low level. Uh, but what is electrifying, of course, are those applications which are easier to electrify. You know, the, the, re the reality is certain types of trucking operations lend themselves more easily um, to an electric technology, um, and that would be particularly shorter haul trips where you don't have too much mileage before you get a chance to charge uh, and return to base operations where you return to the same location every night and it have, a, have you know, the opportunity to recharge overnight. You know, that's a heck of a lot easier than um, what you're mentioning, which is those long haul trips where truck will go out um, for multiple days, 
Um, you need to recharge on multiple times. It may not be a re reliable, repeatable route either. So you need to have that charging network around as well as the downtime. That's you know a lot of variables that are not fully <clears throat> fully solved for today. So you know what we expect to see, and this is what we're very much recommending um, all truck users to do strategically, is you focus on shifting to electrification where that works easiest first. So start with short haul. And we believe that most uh, fleet operations can essentially electrify short haul trucking, um, you know, within the next five years. Um, but it's going to take longer, probably 10 to 15 years to fully electrify that long haul. And that's why um, other methods to bring down the energy usage um, efficiencies uh, and this intermodal operation are really so important to be introducing now um, while you are working out the technology side. Yeah, totally. I mean, inter, um, electrification can only do so much here. You know, I want to um, ask you about another table from your uh, um, report, which is it shows, this, is, this I find fascinating. So this is the market share of intermodal long haul. And as it stood last year is that column on the left, 6%, which hopefully that's a low watermark. There was some markets here lost from your previous few years. And you you get it to, you know, I mean, really ambitious number of 22.4% of by 2035. That is, um, you know, 11 years from now, but it's still, you know, amb ambitious nevertheless. And then you sort of break down how the industry can get there. And I, I guess within those things, which of those line items do you feel the most confident in that will um, that, that will come to fruition and then which ones are a little bit more of a, of a stretch target? Well, that's a great question. Um, boy, it's been a while since I've talked to, thought about this table. So um, I think I, I think the freight market benchmarking is achievable. I mean, we do that in different ways everywhere. It's just a matter of putting the shippers together and finding the, the right service provider to provide that visibility um, or even for the class ones to do it. Um, I think that's, that is not rocket scientists. We do it in other venues and why we can't do it right, right now with intermodal versus truck is almost a mind blower in my opinion. We've, we've, we see that this is something that shippers need. Um, I definitely think that could expand the market. So that's probably the more feasible. Um, it's just a matter of putting it together. Um, I think that the, um, I think the, um, I think the technology is there for the EV bogey. Um, mm -hmm. It's just a matter of will it get approved and have it scale up. Um, I mean, this isn't the pipe dream anymore. They're actually running pilots. So th this ends up being more of an approval thing and even for, for the autonomous piece of it. So I think that's, that, I, that's probably going to happen. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the others are probably – the the idea of the conversion to short line, that's probably on the – the more more of a reach uh it requires a lot more just kind of business inertia and change i mean the reality that short lines don't even don't even market to this sales channel right now is a is a big problem right i mean how you 
go out and get these new customers that ship intermodal. So there's probably more barriers to break down on on that integration. But, you know, one kind of can beget the other. I mean, if we suddenly create a world where the autonomous bogey comes and it proves viable in lower density lanes, then that means that more short line rails are going to be introducing themselves to another market. So some of these things actually get each other. So that's just another comment. Yeah, great thoughts there. And another one that's really interesting you, did, you didn't mention there was the, the Surface Transportation Board, which, you know, right now, you know, exempts intermodal from economic oversight, sort of just assumes that there's a competitive dynamic there with the highway. And it's yeah. my view that that's true in some cases, but not in all cases. I think it's, I, I think that in the Eastern part of the country, there's always a, a, a truckload option from New York to Chicago, from Chicago to Atlanta. Like there's nothing anti-competitive there with, 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 the, with the railroads that you really need economic oversight from the government. But I think from LA to Chicago, LA to Atlanta, like, 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 I, th I think that maybe those should not be exempt from STB oversight. So, um, it, it's good that, that, that you touched on that. Um, but it's, you know, who knows that that's, that's a tough one to call. It's hard to predict what's going to happen in, uh, in, in Washington, DC. Um, gentlemen, uh, we're out of time. Uh, where can people reach out, um, to you both? I'll start with you, Andrew. Well, thanks, Mike. Yeah, you, you, you correctly uh, noted, um, our website. So EDF, um, and we are the part of EDF. We are as EDF business where you can go to our website and find a whole bunch of research on different aspects of the energy transition and how the financial community, um, can lean in to support, um, these transitions from different, uh, sectors. You know, these things are quite complicated. There's a lot of moving parts and, and, uh, we try to unpack that and, and, and come up with some clear recommendations. So please, um, you know, visit us at edf.org. And Bill, how can we reach out to you? Yeah, I'm at billoftis.com and, uh, or email at bill at billoftis.com. It's probably the best way to reach me. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Hope everyone has a good day.